We're good. All right. So um, grab your Bibles if you have one. If not, we got some in the back. And we are going to turn to Psalm 19. If you guys remember, uh, we are uh, doing a series in the Psalms when I preach and uh, picking a different one each time. Today it's Psalm 19, a very well-known psalm. Uh, some have kind of classified it as a Torah psalm or a wisdom psalm. Uh, but either way, it focuses on God's word, all right? God's revelation to his people. And that's why I titled our sermon, God Speaks. And we're going to see the different ways that God speaks uh, to us. C.S. Lewis uh, said of this psalm, he said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Uh, and as we look at this, um, there's a lot of poetic features, and uh, I don't know about you guys, I'm not much into poetry. Uh, I don't quite understand it very well, um, I, I, uh, but I, I think that there is something very beautiful for, uh, for, for us, even if we don't like and understand poetry, as we study Psalm 19. So let's all stand together, uh, get our blood flowing a little bit more, and out of respect to God's holy and inerrant word, and I will read starting in verse 1. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens He has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from His pavilion like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let me take a seat. I don't know if you guys have ever uh, studied um, world religions or other faiths, but deism is the belief that God is somewhere out there, but not really involved in the affairs of human life or mankind. And surely there are different variations of deism, but uh, it's kind of the idea that, like uh, some people say sometimes, the clock maker or clock setter theory, where he made the, he made the watch, he wound it up and let it go. Okay? He didn't interfere with the affairs of man. 
Many of our founding fathers of, the, of our country would not be considered evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, like we would say, for ourselves, but they would be deists, folks like Benjamin Franklin. And they, like the 19th and 20th century uh, liberals, basically stripped down everything from the Bible, all the core tenets of the faith, pretty much to just kind of this moralism, um, this uh, kind of do-good, behavior modification kind of religion. They saw religion as having some value. And as one author put it in reference to Franklin, Ben Franklin, he says this, Although Franklin did it many times toy with some radical anti-Christian beliefs, he settled on the conviction that Christianity was useful because of the way it fostered virtue or kind of good behavior. And so he, like other deists, said, you know what, there is some value for religion. It kind of makes us good people, and therefore we have a good society, or at least in theory. So deists say that God is probably there, but for all practical purposes, he is silent. He is absent in the affairs of man. And for us as Christians who believe the Bible, this is the exact opposite of what we believe. To borrow from a title of a famous Francis Schaeffer book, he is there and he is not silent. That's what we believe about our God, that he is there, he is present, and he is very active in the affairs of man. He's not silent. Our God speaks. So this morning, as we look at Psalm 19, we're going to see that God is speaking all around us, all around us, in his world and in his word, and so we should listen closely and follow his lead as he is speaking. And so we're going to look at several uh, main areas in which God speaks. Three major arenas. First, we're going to see that God speaks through creation. Second, we're going to see that God speaks through his word. And then finally, how God speaks to our own hearts as we study Psalm 19. So first, in verses 1 through 6, God speaks through his creation. Verse 1, we've probably heard it many times before. I love these words. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I want you guys to notice as we walk through this psalm that there is a speaking theme or a speech theme as, we, as this, this psalm progresses. It dominates each of these three sections. Verses 1 through 6, God is speaking through what he has created. See, the creation around us is telling a story if we would listen. A story of how great and how magnificent our God actually is. Theologians separate this kind of revelation from the Bible, calling it natural or general revelation. It tells us things that are generally true about God, about who he is, what he is like, we watch a storm and we see God's power. We see a sunrise and we see his beauty. But it's limited. That's why we need the Bible. And we're going to get to that in our second point. But for now, let me not get ahead of ourselves and let's see how creation speaks to us. Notice a few things here about creation's speech. The first one is simply that it does speak, right? As we are out and about in God's world, he speaks to us through his creation. That's why the heavens declare, the skies proclaim. God is not silent. He is not silent in the world that he has created. 
he is speaking to his people, to those who don't love him as well. But notice what he's speaking about. He's speaking about something. What do these things speak? They speak the glory of God. They show off his handiwork, right? As we go to maybe an art museum and we see a painting on the wall and we look at that painting and we call it maybe the handiwork of that painter, we see something of the painter in that. We see the, the intricate details and we say, wow, and we're, we're in awe. The same of God and his creation. Notice also the duration of the speech. Day to day and night to night, verse 2 says, which points to this continuous nature of God speaking. It's not like he said something once through creation and then he's done. He says it continually over and over and over again as the sun rises and as the sun sets. God is pouring forth his glory through the created world. Lastly, also see the extent of his speech. Verses 3 and 4 remind us that there is no speech that's not heard. And this speech goes actually to the ends of the earth. It goes all over the world. There's no question about it. God's speech is heard by all of God's creation. No matter what language we speak, whether it's English or Spanish, Chinese or Urdu or clicks or whatever we use, God's speech is heard. The message is loud and clear. Now we know in other parts of the scripture that there, we in our sinful nature suppress what we know is true. God's speaking to us, but we suppress that. But God is speaking. In verses 4 through 6, David kind of gets poetic in using these two metaphors for how creation's speech is like the sun. As it rises... And he shows this, he talks about a bridegroom coming out of a chamber or an athlete running a race. And the idea here is clear as it says in verse 6, there is nothing hidden from its heat. And I'll be honest, the, the metaphor is a little confusing at first, but the point is clear that God's speaking goes forth to all creation. Nothing is hidden from his speech just like nothing is hidden from the sun. It all feels its heat, all creation. So no one has excuse. No one can say, I don't know God, or he hasn't spoken to me. No one can say that God has been silent. Not even the person in the remotest tribes of the jungles of South Africa, or the desert of Africa, or sorry, South, South America, then Africa. No one has an excuse. We see clearly here that God is speaking through his creation. And the question is, for you and I and everybody else, are we listening? Now, I know not everybody enjoys nature like I do. I know that, uh, for example, uh, you know, a good time is not defined by uh, going out and, and uh, going camping in the woods for some people like Dave and Santo. But I do. I like going out in the woods. I like going to a rustic cabin and enjoying walking around. Um, but thankfully, we don't have to enjoy particularly nature and be out in it to know that uh, God's glory is shown through it. That's why I think series like Planet Earth has been so popular. I can watch something like Planet Earth in the comfort of my own living room and say, man, 
man, God is a creative God. I look at the intricate detail of the animals and the birds and the fish and, and, and the world and these things, this technology that God has used to capture those things. And my heart is in awe. I watch that series and it's actually worshipful to me. And I, I, can, I can look at that. And even if one that doesn't like going outside, we can look at those things and see God's handiwork and say, God, you are awesome. You are all powerful. We can watch a sunset from our porch or a sunrise and say, Lord, what an artist you are. God's creation is speaking to us. Creation's job is to make much of its creator. It's shy in that way. It's not to bring glory to itself, but to the one who made it, to its creator. When was the last time you and I took a walk on the beach or a walk in the woods and just stopped to admire the glory of God in his creation? It's something that we should do often. Sadly, some of the time what we do is we actually worship the thing in and of itself, right? That's what we do as sinful human beings. We look at the beach, for example, and we say, hey, this beach is great. And in one way, we actually end up worshiping the beach instead of worshiping the one who created the beach. Amen. Right? We have to be careful of that, even as believers. Well, as wonderful as creation is, we said a few minutes ago that the, the creation, the general revelation is limited. We need something more to tell us about who God is about what's wrong with our sinful nature and how we might be saved, how we should go and live as Christians. And that's where we see in verses 7 through 11 that God speaks through his word. Secondly, God speaks through his word. And so as we move to 7 through 11, there's a distinct change. Commentators point out kind of some differences between the two paragraphs. Say, for example, like the change in the name of God. In the first uh, paragraph, which we are talking about general revelation in God's world, it's just kind of the most generic uh, uh, name or least specific name for God. But then when we come to God's word, we have God's covenant name of Yahweh, the Lord in all caps, as you see in your Bible. It's a relational, special name. He is our God. We are his people. And so we see the specialness of God's revelation in his word, even through that. Possibly a more helpful way to understand how these two sections relate is uh, how my previous talk, uh, pastor talked about the, this uh, text. He kind of modeled it after what Martin Luther said, and he said, God has two books, the big book and the little book. The big book is the world, and it tells a, a basic, beautiful truths of the scriptures. It tells a story for us, right? It's kind of like a picture book for a kid. It's something that the kid doesn't have to have too much of a, a smart intellect to understand, but he can grasp the basic concepts as he looks or she looks at that picture book. That's the way that we look at the world. And then there is the little book, which is the Bible. It doesn't have any pictures, but it's loaded with details and specifics as it teaches us the mind of Christ, as it teaches us the gospel, as it teaches us how we should live as Christians. The big book and the little book. Verses 7 through 11, David uses a lot of different terms for God's word. You see this here, law, testimony, precepts, rules, commandments. 
He uses these different words which generally refer to the Bible as a whole, right? God's revelation to us. They may have some slight nuances in their meaning and, and how they play a part in God's specific revelation, but they generally refer to God's word. And there are six couplets here that are basically laid out the same way. Look at the verses 7 through 11. You have a name for God's word, a description of God's word, and a function of God's word for each of these six couplets. For example, look at verse 7. It simply says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So you have the name, which is the law of the Lord, description, it's perfect, and then function of what it actually does for us, it revives the soul. The perfect law does something inside of believers. As we read it, as we meditate on it, as we think about it, it revives us. One commentator says that its function is restoring to full vigor and vitality the flagging spirit of mankind and providing him with the enduring inner food without which life cannot be fully lived. That's why we talk about God's word as nourishing, right? Almost like food. We put food in our bodies. It nourishes our bodies to make them strong, to function as they should. A believer needs God's word to function as he or she should. My question is, is this the way that we view God's word? Now, as I was preparing for this, there are a lot of times that I don't see God's word like that. I don't see God's word as reviving or life-giving. But it is. We're told here, when I'm tired, when I'm worn out, I'd sooner go to a cup of coffee or a sweet treat or go for a run or a walk or whatever it is than go to God's word to be revived. Maybe my favorite TV show, my favorite drink or favorite food, whatever it might be. And not that those things are bad in and of themselves. Those things are, are given to us as gifts from God to glorify Him. But like we said earlier, a lot of times we make that thing the object of our worship, right? And we go to that thing for rest instead of going through it to the Lord. And I was convicted about how few times I go to God's Word when I'm tired. When I need reviving. You know, a lot of times we see God's word as a discipline. Something that has to be done. We say, you know, as Christians we need to read the Bible. We've got to wake up. We've got to have our devotions. Whether we do it in the morning or the evening or whatever time of day we do it. And that's just something I have to do. Which is right. We have to meditate on God's word. We've got to read God's word. We've got to study God's word. But it's much more than just a discipline. God reminds us here that it is a great joy, as David points out in verse 8, that it makes the heart rejoice. So in that sense, so I've talked before about this idea of a duty and a delight, as I've heard from one pastor. A duty and a delight to be in God's word. In fact, we see in verses 10 and 11 that it is the most desirable thing for us. What does David say? He says that it is a better than fine gold, sweeter than honey. And so it's, it's better than the best gold that you could ever get or better than the sweetest honey that you could ever have or taste on your lips. That is God's word to us as Christians. 
You know, I was thinking about this and, and it made me wonder about the question, what is our goal and what is our honey? What are the things that we see as most desirable in this world? Is it our homes? Is it our cars, our jobs, our vacations, our clothes, our music, our sports, our achievements, whatever it may be? And as good as those things are, do we see God's word as better than that? As more desirable than those things? Maybe what God is doing this morning in us is kind of correcting or tweaking us or realigning our view of the Bible this morning. You know, just like we take our cars into the shop every 6,000 miles, we get a realignment, right? We, we need to get that realignment so our tires wear evenly. There are times that we need to be realigned to God's word and how God looks at his word. How he wants us to look at it as desirable, as a treasure. But we don't need to wait 6,000 miles. It needs to be a daily and a moment by moment realignment for us. Well, David continues, and he says that one important function of God's word is to warn us. To warn us of danger, found in verse 11. And this function of warning is bore out or teased out in the final section of the psalm, verses 12 through 14, which we now turn. And it brings us to our final point, which is God speaks through both of these things, the world and his word, to us, to you and me. Okay? So God is speaking he speaks through the world, he speaks through his word, and he does it to our own hearts. So he realizes that he needs to not look out there, but inside of himself, in his own heart, and ask the question, what effect does God speaking have upon me, upon my heart, upon my life? And that's the question before us now. See, in these final verses, David kind of has an Isaiah 6 moment. And if you guys remember back in Isaiah 6, after Isaiah beheld the glory of God, what did he say? Woe is me, for I am an unclean man with unclean lips among an unclean people. He beheld the glory of God and then he looked back at himself and said, man, I'm a mess. He realizes his faults and failures and imperfections according to God's word. That's what happens here with David. He looks at God's perfect word. And then he's looking back on himself. And he realizes, I haven't lived up to this word. I've struggled to believe this word. To take it as true. I like what uh, Derek Kidner said. He said, the two-edged sword has penetrated. All right, we see scripture as a double-edged sword. We talk about that in Hebrews. He says, the sword has penetrated. God's word penetrated David's heart. He used both sources of revelation to penetrate, to reveal his sin, to warn him, and to correct him. But after he does that, what does David do? David prays for help. David turns to the Lord in an honest prayer, praying to him. If you remember, we prayed Psalm 19 in our confession of sin today. We do that often. Because as we look at God's perfect word, the standard as it were, and then we look at our lives as kind of like a mirror, and we see the ways that we have fallen short. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know what David is talking about here. When he talks about these hidden sins 
and these sins that are right out in front of me, right? The ones that are right out in front of me, maybe it's the impatient, uh, angry outburst of your kids that everybody sees. Or at a coworker at work. But there are those sins also that no one really sees, or maybe few people know about. Maybe it's only your spouse, or your pastor, or a good friend. Or maybe they, they don't even know about those sins. There are hidden sins. David seems to suggest that there are sins that are even hidden from us at times. Our own sin that we struggle with, that maybe we don't really see it. It reminds me of the need to pray another psalm, which we pray also in confession of sin, which is Psalm 139. It says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. What a beautiful prayer that is, right? We need to pray that often. Say, God, search my heart. Show me what I can't see on my own or what I'm not presently seeing right now. If the sins that we know about are so ugly and heinous towards God, how much more so are the ones that we don't see? But as the Lord reveals them, we should grieve of them and repent of them, yes? But this is a place where we go back to the gospel. That's why we have that assurance Afterwards, that proclamation of the gospel, Ephesians 1, 7, that in Him, in Jesus, we are forgiven of these things. So we're not those that have no hope. We're not those that stand condemned. But because what Jesus did in His life and His death and His resurrection, we are forgiven. We are free. We are no longer condemned. Sentenced to death and to the wrath of God. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. The way that David concludes this prayer in verse 14 is probably the most well-known verse of this passage. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Remember at the beginning of our sermon, we talked about how this speech theme goes all throughout this song. God speaking through creation, God speaking through his word, God speaking to us, and now it comes full circle. As one commentator pointed out, he says, In turn, the psalmist, as a redeemed creature of God, prays that his expressed and unspoken words may be acceptable to God. So he goes from God's speech all the way to what? Our speech. It comes full circle. God is speaking to us all the time through his world and through his word. And in turn, we should desire that our speech would be godly. Our speech would be encouraging. Our speech would be truthful, upright, and uplifting to those around us. That's the psalmist's heart as it should be ours. Well, as we come to a close this morning, I want to remind us that it's important, as we've done with the other psalms, to ask, how does this psalm point us to Jesus Christ? How do we understand this psalm in relation to Jesus? As Christians on this side of the cross, that's an important way for us to look at the Bible. What has Jesus done that changes my understanding or tweaks my understanding of this in a good way? Well, as we prayed this prayer, 
along with David, in verses 12 through 14, we realize that we will never be innocent of great transgressions on our own. We will never be proclaimed innocent or faultless of great sin or blameless. And this is where the work of Christ on our behalf is so important. This is where it points us back to Jesus. He's the only one that can fulfill this psalm for us in our place. As my old seminary professor said this, he said, He is the only one who can ultimately, ultimately be declared innocent from hidden faults and whose words are completely acceptable in the sight of God. Jesus was that perfect man, the perfect one, who was indeed faultless and innocent. And that's why we have hope this morning. That's why we can pray that prayer and not be discouraged. Pray that prayer and not be driven to grief because we will never be innocent on our own. That's why Jesus had to come and to live the perfect life in our place. God is reminding us of that this morning. And so as we have studied Psalm 19, we have seen that God is speaking all over the world. He's speaking all throughout his creation. He's speaking through his word, his specific revelation to us. And that changes us. He uses those to speak to us, to speak to our hearts. And as he does, his word does something inside of us. It makes us to be the people that he has saved us to be. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing as we are reminded this morning about God's holy and precious and timely word. And I hope that that's what it's been for us this morning as we looked at Psalm 19. And as we look at it in the future and use it in future services to go back and to have a deeper appreciation for God's word and a love for it and a desire for it. We make time for all kind of other things that we want. God's prayer is that we would make time for God's word as the priority in our lives. And I pray that it will be so for you and for me and all of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, it's sometimes we actually have a, a passage that uh, focuses on the word itself, like today in Psalm 19. And Lord, I, I confess that just a lot of times I don't view your word this way. God, I see it as a, a, a labor, as a chore. I see it as something I just got to do, which it is, but so much more than that, Lord. I pray that for all of us, that your word would be sweeter than honey. God, that it would be more valuable than the most precious gold or money that uh, uh, we could have in this world. God, I pray that you would work that in us, Lord. God, I pray that we would be a people, we would be a church that not only bases our life and ministry around your word, but it, it would be inside of us, God, that we would read it, that we would meditate on it, that we would sing it, that we would proclaim it to our friends and our family and our neighbors and wherever we go. God, this is a big prayer request, Lord, and only you can answer it. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you are a God who speaks and that you are not silent. We love you, Father, and we pray this all in Jesus' name.